insights, interviews, and best practices by clinicians for clinicians. Welcome to GE Healthcare's Clinical View Podcast. Hello, I'm Sal Aronson, and I'm with you at the Top Med Talk booth at the ASA, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana in 2022. I am very, very pleased to be here today and um, promote the mission of Top Med Talk. Of course, that's to provide free education to anyone in the world, and of course, those sorts of missions are not possible without our sponsors. And I particularly want to give a shout out for this year's sponsors of uh, giving us this opportunity to Edwards Life Science and Medtronic. And of course, um, this wonderful booth that we have here at the ASA Convention Hall, um, number 2245, is brought to us by the great support of the ASA, our partner to provide this wonderful space so we can um, provide this content to you live. And for those of you who wish to live stream, you can do that at live.topmedtalk.com. That's live.topmedtalk.com. All of this content will be available. Um, so far, we're on day two of a three-day course. I think we have 23 or 25 or some ridiculous number of podcasts like that that we'll be archiving for you throughout the day and uh, throughout the uh, weekend. So please tune in. Um, right now, I have the great privilege of uh, introducing our next uh, session and our next speakers. I'm, I'm here with Dr. Sadia Khan and uh, Dr. Frank Overdyke, who are going to be um, engaging in a conversation about focus on monitoring the unmonitored. That just seems like a really cool uh, area to delve into. And I've been reading a little bit about your bios, but I'm going to just sort of pass it over to you first, Sadia, to give us a little introduction of who you are, and, uh, and then we'll pass the baton over to Frank. Thanks so much, Sol. It's a real pleasure to be here at the meeting and take part in all of the wonderful educational opportunities that are here. So my name is Sadia Khan. I'm a consultant physician, although I recognize him in an anesthesiology meeting. I'm the clinical director and service director for cardiology at Chelsea Westminster. And one of the reasons I'm here today is I've had a really keen interest in looking at how we manage patients on our general floors much better and whether we can create better outcomes. Frank? We're going to definitely get into that with greater depth in a moment. And Frank, tell us who you good. are. Good. Uh, good morning, or is it after? It's afternoon. It's pretty close. I'm yeah. Frank Overdyke. I'm a semi-retired professor of anesthesiology. My academic interest is opioid-induced ventilatory impairments. Another way to say that is why do opioids make us stop breathing? And my passion is to reduce preventable harm and dead in beds on our med surge floors. Sol, it's not just cool, but it's tragic what goes on, and we're going to have some cool technologies to hopefully fix that. So nobody has to stay in a med surge ward in a hospital bed and be found dead in bed. So I, obviously that's heavy stuff, and we need to get into that. But before we do, semi-retired professor. What the heck is a semi-retired Golf professor? Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and uh, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's. I actually don't do clinical anesthesia. I during COVID, I did my last cases, although I do miss it. Um, but I am very actively involved in publications still, and do a lot of reviewing of publications and in, in writing about the this issue of patient safety in the hospital med surge floors. Fair enough. 
Um, we have a cardiologist from the UK and the NHS and an anesthesiologist from the States. Give me a little bit of background as to how you met, what was your you know, commonality of thread, and um, obviously how that led to what we're about to talk to. Well, we met five minutes ago, <laughs> so, so and she's, she's a charming person. Um, but no, we uh, have a common interest, uh, gen general electric health care. Uh, I'm a consultant to them in the area of respiratory monitoring outside the operating room. So uh, that's a completely different set of requirements as far as what kind of monitor works in that setting because patients are awake, they're talking, they're eating, they're walking. And how do we monitor those people during those periods of time that they may decompensate and get into trouble? Oh. And, and, and Sadia. Sadia. So Frank wasn't joking about meeting in person only five minutes ago, but one of the benefits of COVID, if there have indeed been any, is the ability to collaborate and work with people almost anytime, anywhere. And we have a shared interest in preventing um, harm on general wards. So Frank worries about opioids. I have a lot less of concern about that as a physician, but I have similar clinical problems in terms of poor outcomes, particularly from sepsis. So I was going to ask you to give us a, a, a bit of a more focus of where your, your interests or concerns are, and it's in the setting of sepsis, and I would presume hemodynamic consequences of sepsis? Yeah, so as I say, I'm a cardiologist, right. and when I first started my consultant career, my attending career in US speak, it, the West Middlesex, which is part of Chelsea and Westminster now, one of my management leadership tasks was to look at our hospital at night model. So we recognise that when our wards are less well-staffed, although we have that problem during the day as well, when we ha our wards are less well-staffed, actually patient deterioration and harm is a much more high-risk and frequent occurrence. Staffing is reduced. When we've got junior members of the team making the first-line decisions. And I recognised that actually my challenges as a cardiologist weren't exactly the same that was facing the wider hospital community and a significantly greater proportion of patients than the ones I look after directly. So whereas my concerns might be about cardiac ischemia, coronary ischemia, on the general wards, the issues are around sepsis care, hypovolemia and hypoxia. That links into Frank's comment around opioids in particular. And the consequences of respiratory sequelae right. as a consequence of opioid. So, Sadi has a valid point. Our biggest issues on the ward are not opioids. They are sepsis, development of sepsis undetected, development of heart failure. But these all share a common theme. The respiratory system, our breathing, is the canary in the coal mine for decompensation, in my opinion. It is the first thing that will show changes in deterioration. And if we can catch that early enough, we can do a, a much better job. For sepsis, it's really important to get antibiotics and fluids in early. And if we can and we have some data that will show that actually if you monitor patients continuously on the ward, you can intercept those disease processes at an earlier time. So if I were to draw a thread, and there are so many that we could uh, reach for, but um, a common concern, a problem, is capacity management. How do we get more juice out of the squeeze? How do we stretch those limited resources that exist with respect to personnel today um, and, and make us more effective, more efficient. Um, monitoring the unmonitored, if you will, but using technology tools to make yeah. us smarter, better, um, and, and more uh, clairvoyant. 
Um, how are we doing that today and where are the gaps and opportunities? So to me, Saul, this is first about our responsibility to take care of our patients properly. We are using a standard of care of monitoring that typically is to collect vital signs every four hours. Do you know where that came from? Is there? That's a hundreds year, that's a standard that's completely outdated. There was never any data that showed that that was a proper monitoring interval. Now you may say maybe two hours is better. We've tried to move to two hours, but really in this day and age, when everyone is wearing a device that collects their vital signs continuously, um, that's why, why couldn't we, that's the least we can do in a hospital where people want to feel safe, that we have the responsibility to do that. So it's not, you, you, you imply that it's elective, we need to do a little better. Now this is a baseline responsibility that we have that no one goes, uh, is found undetected in a, in a bad deterioration in the hospital. That's my uh, opinion about that. Sadia? So I'm just going to pick up with Frank. So I agree absolutely that patient outcome and patient care is our number one priority. But I also like to bring it back to the staff. So we've all lived through a terrible, difficult, unimaginable two, two and a half years, thinking that we'd get to the other side of this and maybe things would be easier, but it's not. So across the globe, staffing in healthcare is an ongoing workforce challenge. And to that issue of, do we invest in more staff? Yes, absolutely we do. But where those staff come from, how we support those who are already in our systems working and how we make technology make the lives of staff better has to be on the same scale as patient outcomes. And for me, this isn't a technology replacement. This is technology enabling staff to do what staff do best, which is care for patients. And where are we today with the adaption of those tools, what, where, what is the state of the art of those tools, and, and how do we apply that, implement it with respect to um, user case, implement it with respect to making the users familiar or trained to apply its full potential? Um, Sadi, I'll let you jump into that first, and then I'm going to ask Frank to weigh in. So yeah, I'd be interested in Frank's thoughts on this, but from my perspective, we'd started to do this before COVID happened, because I say one of my leadership tasks was to say, can I make this better and safer? And I recognised that process change and staff training would only get me so far. So I was already looking at technology to support that work and to improve outcomes for everyone. COVID has no doubt accelerated that at a, almost an exponential rate. So if you look around the globe, there are huge numbers of institutions now who've adopted these technologies, often in pockets. I haven't really come across anyone who's adopted it across a whole system level. But those user cases, those learnings about adoption, the understanding about what makes these technologies work for staff and for patients is mounting and will grow exponentially in these coming years. Frank? So... This was not simply a matter of bringing a monitor from the operating room and plunking it on a ward. A lot has to go into that, and we learned a lot doing this. When I first did the first study on this 20 years ago, uh, we realized this is a completely different task, and, and for the workflow to be consistent with, with the providers, the nurses, we need to make major changes, and that has happened. It's taken some time. Initially, there were some real issues with alarm fatigue, with the workflow, with people feeling burdened. But for the 
early adopters, which are now not so early anymore, centers that have adopted this, the, the provide frontline providers are actually much happier with this continuous monitoring. Initially, they tend to be wary of it, standoffish, and thinking it may increase their work. But in, in the long run, when properly implemented, this is safer for the patient, makes them happy because it's very traumatic for the staff to have a patient uh, found dead in bed on the floor. So this, this adoption this happens slowly, but it's finally getting some more momentum. And of course, COVID might have precipitated some of that, but I think it's, uh, we're at a stage where the technology has matured. And, and the need has, people have recognized that. One of the things that I've always um, had to confront when I've been in rooms where these conversations um, come forward with continuous data, you know, um, uh, push, not necessarily pull, and we can talk about the difference between the two, um, is, is how can we uh, train a new set of providers to to, to be able to filter and use these data um, in, in an effective way and not be overburdened by it and, and to know um, when, it's, when, when it's okay to feel comfortable to not, you know, have to constantly be drinking from a, a fire hose, <laughs> if you will. Sadia, what, you've done this, so why don't you answer that? So I think for me that data has a huge potential to really unlock better pathways of care. Because as you say, so no one really has had the level of data that we've had before. And we've all moved to electronic patient records. So suddenly the ability to get a holistic 360 degree view and get it in real time and every moment is there when it wasn't there before. I think for me, one of the key things around managing that is understanding the why. So why do staff want to do this? And how do we engage that passion for patient care and delivery to work with them so they control the workflow so it matches with what they're already doing and they have the ability to see and manage that? So I think we ignore alarm fatigue, as Frank mentions, at our peril, because that's one of the first things that will ensure the staff aren't able to engage with this permanently. But for us, it's been about co-designing and co-producing that journey and ensuring there's an ongoing feedback to staff about the things that, have, that they benefit from and that they see that directly. So you design the system so it's not drinking from a fire hose that's on. You turn the hose off. It's a notification system. Some patients don't need to be have attention every hour, even every three hours. They're perfectly stable. But when they do... That's when you notify them and the system has the smarts in it to decide when when is the appropriate way to do that and to send a notification by pager or by uh, whatever mechanism there is, central nursing stations or so to do that. So it cuts both ways. We, we don't, this idea of interval checking on people, if you check on them continuously, you may only need to check on them if there's a significant sign of deterioration. Of course, the, the rub is how good are we at detecting that? And we're getting much better at it. And, and of course, as we evolve from data to information, the you know, machine learning tools and artificial intelligence, um, you know, techniques and tools that, that are now becoming ubiquitous in, in our ability to use data better are, are enabling us to be smarter um, in, in our uh, way of using data. Um, are you seeing that in the field today, or are we still sort of, you know, looking, um, you know, 
inside the building uh, from from the the window that's outside. So I think it's a watch this space because we're still mm-hmm. looking from outside, but the outside is very close. Our noses are pressed to that glass already. There are people over the world, including us, who are looking at that now, and it won't be that far behind. And let, Frank, let me give you a comment, Saul. We're going to have self-driving cars before we're going to have self-monitored patients in the in the hospital. It's much easier for us to monitor a patient, in my view, from vital signs and than it is to have a self-driving car. So what does that say? It says a couple of things. We have a regulatory burden in medicine. We, we come up with a great algorithm that knows when Saul is, is not, and we have the monitor learns what you are like. They have a baseline calibration period. They can do that. So we are not gonna set the saturation at 93 that we set it for every other person. We set it to Saul's reading, and then we have deep learning from your data as it gathers to, to notify Saul's not feeling so well. Of course, all that requires re- regulatory. We have the capability to do that now, but we have a big burden there from the regulatory side and from the adoption side. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to sort of wrap up this discussion, which ultimately ends with the, are we ready? This is you know an existential sort of question as a community of healthcare providers to embrace what some of us think is the inevitability um, and and what are those barriers on, on a personal day-to-day level and and of course I don't know the answer to that and this is all speculative so let's end with all of us speculating what we think are those barriers so I, th- I think we've touched on a lot of those barriers already the regulatory frameworks are difficult to navigate Staff trying to implement change and improve things at a ground level often find the systems and processes almost designed to defeat them. We know that that pull from patients is there. Patients are more invested than ever in the quality of care and the experience of care that they provide. We know that the technologies are there and we know that the workforce challenges are there. So I'm with you, Sol. I I think if we're not going to solve the solution with technology, how are we going to solve it? I take it back to the why. Frank, parting thoughts? Um, There's consumer technology and then there's medical technology. Consumer technology, which has a lot less regulation, is overtaking medical technology. Soon, every patient walking into the hospital are going to have their SpO2 and their heart rate and their respirator on their watch. I hope we can have an answer for these people and their families if there's something that happened and it happened it's we have a record on their on their wrist but we didn't know what happened so i th- my point is i think the public will expect us to accelerate this and to not let consumer uh, monitoring overtake medical monitoring we have a responsibility in the hospital to take care of everybody not just most patients every single pay nobody should suffer preventable harm in the hospital and i think with what the technology is getting there it's our attitude needs to uh, keep up. Interesting. So the patients will drag us to success. Nice way to put it. Yeah. Kicking and screaming, maybe? No, I, yeah. don't, I, <laughs> I hope go. not. There you go. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure to meet you. This is always a fun conversation. It's it's really uh, one that is on the forefront of everybody's mind and you know, medicine today. And I really appreciate having the opportunity to share your thoughts um, on the Top Med Talk stage. So thank you very much from... ASA New Orleans 2022, Um, that's a wrap.
Great. Thanks for having us. Thank Top you. Men Talk. Thanks for downloading Top Men Talk. Don't forget to subscribe via your podcatcher. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And also, don't forget, Top Med Talk is the broadcasting arm of EdPom, evidence-based perioptive medicine. We'd love you to find out more about that. If you check out ebpom.org, you can find low prices on some of the conferences we're organizing around the world. Many of them are virtual and don't even involve you leaving your own Check out ebpom.org now. Thank you for listening to Clinical View Podcasts, brought to you by GE Healthcare. Expand your view at clinicalview.gehealthcare.com.